This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. With us in studio is Dean Gurney, also from Sands & Associates. He's the president, has over 30 years of experience practicing in the areas of personal and corporate insolvency and restructuring. Dean, of course, has a huge skill set, deep experience for all the clients that he meets, recognizing the stress and confusion that those facing financial difficulty often feel and uses an empowerment through knowledge approach. I love this quote, Dean. Whenever I'm assisting a Sands & Associates client, My goal is to educate them on their financial requirements so they're better able to function in today's financial environment. Thank you so much for being here. Pleasure to be here today. Yay! So we're talking about credit trends. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Yeah. So Dean, I, we were chatting a little bit ahead of this, and obviously, uh, well, obviously, because our listeners can't see us, but you've been a trustee longer than I have. So been a trustee myself about the last ten years. But Dean, you date back to early '80s. Not to date you too too much, but um, <laughs> I thought for today, if you can, if we can talk a little bit about you know what you've seen as a trustee, how credits evolved over time. You know, what was it like when you started to become a trustee, and what have you seen today? Because there's so many innovations, so many more ways to get people into trouble. So it's kind of how do we get to this mess that we're in now, I think, is, is, is kind of the focus of today's segment. Sure. And um, in the 1980s, you know, uh, credit was uh, just beginning, becoming its uh, into its fruition, and that's when things really started out. But as most people refer to the 19, early 1980s as the, the Great Recession and the, the, because of the high interest rates, 23, 20, 23%. We're talking mortgage rates over 20%, oh, right? That's correct. God, and, that's uh, insane, some, right? <laughs> some, some people, some parents and some people that were, that were communicating with uh, through this uh, radio show remember those times. <laughs> And they tell their children about those times, but they don't believe it because we only have interest rates of two and three and four yeah. percent. Uh, but to pay that kind of debt, it was huge in that particular point in time, and there was uh, 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 there was catastrophic, I'll call it, uh, business failures at that particular point in time. And um, and and that's when I I started. But really, I started uh, with uh, kind of a, trying this job out uh, to see if I really liked it or not. But more than that, I I had in the back of my mind, I had that uh, one of these days the economy is going to work out and everything's going to be fine and um, and uh, the economy will come back and I will be out of a job. There'll be so, no need for trustees, no right? No need for trustees <laughs> because before that, trustee work was a was a was uh, done by accountants and it was a part-time job with the, in the accounting firm. So, you know, the accountants did their accounting thing and they did bankruptcy on the side um, and, that was, uh, and that was about it. But after 1980, uh, that was a, that was a, a, a gone uh, practice. You know, mm-hmm. now uh, you see uh, uh, accountants do their thing, and trustees and bankruptcy. We do our thing when we only uh, communicate with each other when we need them. Uh, 
so 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 from that environment then um you know you got to remember that uh we were, we didn't have the credit facilities that we had today we had to go to the to the bank between 10 and 10 and 3 mm-hmm. if you didn't make it to the bank there you know you basically you had no money for the for no, the weekend no bank machines then or- no bank machines no nothing and uh so what happened uh, in those days is that credit or uh, I'm sorry gas companies uh brought out credit card okay? oh, yeah. well, they were a, the first ones that's mm. right oh, Oh, interesting. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. So, uh, and that's, uh, and that was the first uh, credit that was available. And really, the, the simple philosophy was, okay, you got the money in the bank, you need to get, get, you need gas, so you put it on this card, and, you know, next week or when the bill comes in, you pay it because right. you got the money in the bank. Hmm. And really, that's way, the way people should be conducting themselves today, but unfortunately, <laughs> that's not what happens. So uh, and 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 you know again the 1980s were was a trend where housing prices were moderate. Uh, uh, you had uh, you had to put down uh, 10 15 percent uh, to get a to qualify for a mortgage if you wanted a credit card. Then uh, the, the banks issued credit cards. Visa was just starting to come out then, but you had to be a preferred creditor with the bank. If you weren't the if you weren't mm. one of the high income rollers with the with, with the banks at that time, you didn't get one of these cards. And, you know, and of course, they were kind of a, a prestigious thing because when you went out and you got credit and you put your credit card down, obviously, it was, it was like a, a, show a, a of go- it was like a gold American Express Absolutely. card, you know, like it was yeah. like, you know, prestige. It was yeah. prestige and everything else. But, you know, of course, uh, as time goes on, the credit is becoming easier. There's been more players come into the marketplace. Uh, people have given uh, more and more credit uh, for uh, for less and less security. I guess you could call it that. Sure. And uh, what is it, what is event over that period of time is that w- where we are today. Which the most surprising thing about uh, the credit we have today is that it's been somewhat facilitated by recessions that we've had along the way, or downturns in the economy. I'll hmm. call them. So what is uh, and and every one of the downturns since 1980 that have taken place, that ironically, has been recovered by consumer spending. Right. Consumer spending on borrowed money. And that that exists today. So every time that the government says, you know, things are slowing down, well, we gotta we gotta get people spending money here somehow because that's what's going to drag us out of this recession. And uh, so, and and a lot of times uh, for the last few recessions, that's exactly what has happened: is that we've we've dragged ourselves out of this. But but the borrowing and the spending continues, and that's how people get themselves into more. Credit card. Problem. It's so available, though. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, uh, to go from from gas companies to to banks and being a preferred customer. I mean, you can be offered five or six credit cards at any given time, depending mm-hmm. on the institution. They can access your, you know, get a hold of you through your ma- mailing address. But students, parents give oh, yeah. their students who are away in university or college, and. Uh, or just go go shopping at your favorite retail store. Someone, someone will stop you in the aisle. You need a credit card. We'll give you this free blanket or something like that. Yeah, like, or a department yeah. store. If you're yeah, buying exactly. something, they say, oh, well, do you have one of our cards? No. Oh, well, would you like one? You'll get 15% off if you sign up right now. And I'm thinking, sounds good. You know, let's sign up. And a lot of people a lot of people do exactly do that. that. They walk yeah. into the store. They sign those things, not knowing what they're getting involved in. And then the temptation is too great. It is. Well, even, you know, you spoke about uh, students there a minute 
minute ago. Like on registration week, uh, I'm Blair and I, when Blair and I went to university, this didn't exist. But on registration week, you go in there and you got all these credit card companies lined exactly. up wanting to yep. give you credit cards. Uh, well, you know, when we went to school, that didn't exist. Exactly. But nowadays, like they're just dying to uh, keep on advancing this money. Um, it's all it's up to everybody. Uh, to say no, you know, you have to know what your limits are and, and you have to basically control your credit and do a proper budget and make sure that you make sure that you live within your means and, and uh, always, always have some money in the bank so that if you do buy something, you have the ability to pay. It's almost like, Dean, you've got to do the opposite of what the herd, so to speak, what everybody else is doing. Because thinking about what you're saying about, you know, the consumer-driven recoveries from the recession, the metric of consumer debt-to-income, that's just went up, 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 up for the last 30 years. We've been in and out of recession, but that number has only increased and not decreased. So the things that you're talking about doing, Dean, of having the money in the bank to pay off the card, uh, that's not what the average person is able to do, unfortunately. Well, that's true. And, you know, and we, live in a, we live in a different time than even... 30 years ago and uh, people are living from paycheck to paycheck and and of course we have more and more demands upon uh, uh, upon us uh, in order to make ends meet uh, even car loans these days like mm-hmm. when when in the 80s car loans uh, they were they were basically made for three or four years. Right now they're like six and seven years. Yeah. You know, like and 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 uh, and we can look at those things all the time, uh, seeing how much uh, the how the credit industry has expanded well beyond its uh, reasonableness at this point in time. And so here's a question for two people in the business. What's the what do you see happening next? I mean, is this just going to continue to some great degree in terms of our avail the availability of credit for us? Or are there you know you know what I'm asking, right? I know it's a, a, a um well, I'm I'm going to expand on Thank that. Thank you. One a you know bit. what I'm saying. So what I'm going to say is is that you know and this, crystal ball. The, that's mm-hmm. the word I was yeah, looking yeah, for. Yeah. Crystal ball. Sorry oh, about that. That's okay. But the the, the until we get our education system to identify that this is a need within our system of 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 getting uh, students to understand what debt is and how to deal with it, uh, it never ceases to amaze me when people come in to see me and they say they always say after we've explained things and we get them on track and we make out a budget for them, they they basically say why isn't this taught in school? Mm-hmm. All the time we hear that. Why is this not taught in school? And and we and my often answer is well you know they want you to know how to do a quadratic equation or how to cal- solve a calculus uh, question. But they certainly don't want you to know how to bang a balance your bank statement. Mm-hmm. You know that might be really useful in life. <laughs> but uh, but you know, um, uh, and we have that ongoing discussion all the time. But until to answer your question, until there is a, there is a real identification that this is a needed function within the education system, as it was when we went to school. We had we had this when we went to school. Um, uh, then I think that the system is going to continue on the way it is. You go and and. For all intents and purposes, like, why does the government or businesses want this to end? That's the other thing, too, right. because... There's no motivation. There's no motive. Mm-hmm. Banks are making huge money out of right. this thing. The government, every time somebody buys something, wages are being paid, GST's been paid. Yes. All of this stuff is being uh, facilitating the, the government's uh, ongoing uh, efforts to collect money. Right. So, everybody has a stake in this. Yes. So, mm-hmm. it's going to be really difficult to... Uh, ratch this thing back to something that is reasonable. But 
we have to be get more education out there is my philosophy. Yeah. And I think just building on, on that, Dean, one thing I've seen just currently, I think into the future here, is the idea of people's fixation on their credit score. So now, you know, the free credit score online, monthly credit monitoring, what's your credit score? You can't get that apart without a credit score. It's, to me, there's some agenda there of making people focus on the wrong indicator, which is a credit score. It's a measure of how much money you make the banks as opposed to, are you solvent? Do you have money saved? Are you doing the right things, paying everything on a monthly basis? So, exactly. Um, so I think there is this grand misdirection that's happening, unfortunately, and most people aren't aware of it. Yes, absolutely. So it's up to each of us to make sure the people in our in our own little families, our own little worlds are aware of the necessity. And it all comes, for me, it all comes down to being accountable, like being responsible for what I'm doing. There is nobody who's going to save me. If I'm 20 years old, 30 years old, or 60 years old, nobody's going to save me. I've got to figure out how to manage this myself. And, and I think you guys are perfect examples in terms of working for a company, having a company that really assist people in a significant way to figure their way out uh, when they get to that end and go, okay, this is it. I can't do any more. I, I need to take some action. I don't know what that is, but I need to find somebody uh, that's going to help me. This is when you go to Sands & Associates. We've been talking with Dean Gurney, who's president of Sands & Associates. And of course, you know Blair Manton. He's also from Sands & Associates. And here's the deal. If you want to check out their website, it's a terrific one. It's just chock a block of good, good information. It's sands-trustee.com. Or if you'd like to give them a call and set up a, a first free visit, 1-800-661-3030, as well to find an office near you. We'll be back with more right after this. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. So we talk about all different kinds of debt and how we incur it. Um, But the unexpected one, I think this is a good segment, Mm -hmm. the stuff that just shows up, and it's hard to believe that that can happen, but we know it can, big time. Absolutely. And a lot of clients that I see, you know, they're managing just fine. And then suddenly there's some shock, you know, maybe they get sick, a kid gets sick, they divorce, something like that. Um, So it's some kind of external shock to the system, something unexpected. And that's what causes them to come and see us. Um, And, you know, if everybody had an emergency fund, if you know, six months of fixed expenses around, I'd be a lot less busy. But the situation that we live in is a lot of folks find it really tough to save money on a monthly basis. So when something happens, they just don't have some cushion to absorb it, unfortunately. I know. I, I remember hearing that uh, hearing that sentiment before about how, oh, yeah, you want to have two, two months worth of mm-hmm. uh, expenses put away. And I said that to somebody, and they just looked at me like I'd arrived from Mars, like, who in their right mind is able to do that? Well, the average person just isn't, right? And, and that's Very true. Very challenging. Yeah, and especially if, you know, maybe if you're small town, wherever, but in some place like Vancouver, Lower Mainland in BC, it's very expensive to keep your head above water here. Yeah, very expensive to do that. So you put Canada Revenue Agency right at the top of this unexpected Mm -hmm. debt. How is it that that's unexpected for folks? Well, that's a good question because for some people, you know, if they're self-employed, they know they're going to owe a balance to CRA every year. It's anticipated. They put some money aside and they pay the money owing. But for some people, CRA debt can come without warning like a bolt out of the blue. And it could be some of these scenarios. You know, you've got a new accountant who's made mistakes or 
they tried to use deductions that weren't allowed. So the so, new person is seeing the errors of the old person or the new person is making, doesn't matter, I guess, oh, right? really? Yeah. Either way, you're getting a reassessment or something back from CRA where you didn't anticipate any of that. You thought your business expenses were fine, your medical expenses or whatever, and CRA has disallowed those and suddenly you've got a balance owing. Got that it. That can be unexpected. Um, in some cases, you've got additional employment income and not enough tax was withheld that source. So for many people, they take on a second job, a part-time job, a side hustle, and the first year when they do their, ta- their taxes, they realize that, oh my God, I was not deducted enough on the second job, and they end up having to pay back a bunch of this extra income that they've gotten. So we've really got to make sure if you're taking on a second job or something like that, that you are getting extra taxes withheld or that you're putting the money aside in your bank account knowing that CRA is going to come and look for it. Um, And, you know, a third way here that CRA can be unexpected is if you become self-employed and you just, for whatever reason, haven't done all the right homework. You don't know all the requirements. Um, You don't know that you're supposed to collect and remit GST, but CRA shows up a year later and says, where's the 5% of your sales you've been collecting? And they don't want to hear that, gee, you didn't know you were supposed to do that. It's your responsibility to know all the rules and to play within them. Yeah, very good. And, I, you know, you've said that they're a very powerful creditor, CRA. Mm -hmm. And I've experienced this just in a tiny bit in a situation where a parent had passed and Mm -hmm. and, uh, they owed money on a, a particular thing and when I talked to CRA and said look my you know my parent has passed and mm-hmm. uh, she didn't know that this was supposed to have da 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 and it really didn't matter yeah, you might find some that their bedside manner is different than others, and some are more understanding um, than other agents at CRA, but at the end of the day, they've got a job to do. And I had to pay it regardless, yeah. right? And as a powerful creditor, they might have been saying things like, well, either you pay us or we're going to start seizing assets, exactly. or we're going to start seizing income, or different things we like that. We didn't go there, but it was just Thank like, God. oh, come on, no. you should be, because everybody else is so thoughtful and considerate when you've lost a parent, Usually, and you're right? trying to yeah. fix up their uh, estate or accounts or whatever. This person was not. Uh, a little compassion can go everywhere in this this world, right? I wasn't getting that. Was not getting that. Yeah, most of the time with CRA, if there is a balance owing, they'll work with you up to six months. So, you know, if you owed $1,000, paid off over the next six months, they'll be just fine with that. They'll charge you a bit of interest. But anything beyond six months, if you need a multi-year payment plan or if you can't pay off the whole amount and you're trying to make a deal, those are losing battles with CRA on your own. You have to work with a trustee to get that done. Yeah, a licensed insolvency trustee. Exactly. The only ones that can actually deal with CRA in any significant way for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, ICBC debt. Yeah, so sometimes people ask... ICBC is incredibly in debt, I might add. Oh my God, the billion dollar <laughs> yeah, loss, something like that. So this They're is, in trouble. Yeah, this is different uh, yes. from your perspective, which I guess we all support ICBC. But anyway, um, <laughs> Sorry. a large amount owing to ICBC, by definition, that's an unexpected event. You know, you'd sure. never anticipate to be in an accident. And of course, you'd never expect not to be covered for that accident. Yeah. Um, so, you know, in some cases, if someone was impaired at the time of the accident, ICBC will deny all coverage um, and then also hold them responsible for amounts that they have to pay out to the other party. Um, in some cases, and these are some of my youngest clients I ever see, if they you know, were driving, um, they had the N or the L and they didn't have the experienced driver with them and they get into an accident, suddenly they're responsible for everything and mm. ICBC is not covering a penny. Interesting. Now, the thing with ICBC debt is it's basically government debt. So they can do the same things that Revenue Canada can do. They can seize assets, they can seize wages. And then what's often of even greater impact too, or equal, um, is they can not allow you to get your license. Right. So if you want to drive in the province of BC, you have to come to terms with ICBC. Now, as a licensed insolvency trustee, uh, ICBC comes under your umbrella as well. Exactly. That's a debt that we can deal with. Now, there are certain parts of ICBC debt that no matter what, you can't get away from. So if you 
you were driving drunk and killed somebody and the court imposes a fine, I'm sorry, a trustee can't help you with that. But we check everything before we go forward. We've got a contact at ICBC. We make sure it's a debt that we can deal with. We can help restructure. And then the person doing either a bankruptcy or a proposal, ICBC debt just becomes another one of those debts. Got it. Um, and the the life event debt, and I know you've spoken about this before, that that is often the, the situation for folks that you sometimes see. Is it something very unforeseen? Somebody within their family got mm-hmm. ill uh, or weren't able to work, or they themselves weren't able to work as a result, and disability didn't cover the expenses and mm-hmm. so forth and so on. Yeah, and the most common one that we see, because we definitely see, you know, the disability point of view, um, but it's when a relationship breaks down. Mm. So whether it's a marriage or common law or something like that, there's a huge impact. And, you know, people often thought, well, bankruptcy causes divorce. It, it's the reverse. Divorce often causes bankruptcy. Fair enough. And there's a couple of reasons for it. Um, you know, first off is that there can be a splitting of debts. So if one partner has incurred all of the debt, um, the other partner can suddenly make a claim against that person and say, hey, you owe me a bunch of this money that I've incurred on debt. If the person can't pay that, you know, they can, there can be a court battle that can ensue about that. Um, there's the cost of legal proceedings. So quite often, if it's acrimonious, if there's a lot of you know, really bad blood and the parties aren't talking, well, talking through lawyers is about the most expensive conversation you're ever going to have and yeah. can take a long time. And sometimes in the end, you'll spend more in legal fees than the assets you were trying to protect. Um, but not to say in every case, it's the wrong thing to fight. In some cases, it's the right thing to do. Sure. Uh, and then there's the cost of reestablishing oneself. So suddenly, instead of having one household for two people, two separate households, they need to buy everything again, they've got you know double the cost typically on a monthly basis. So there can be a lot of impacts of relationships breaking down. Yeah, and besides the fact that it's all consuming and stressful and all of that, it can be brutal for folks. Oh yeah, no, just the... As you're saying, the stress of going through it, of the uncertainty, quite often there's kids involved as well. Um, You know, there can be a custody battle. Um, You know, there can be a lot of things that can really add to a stress level. And then the monetary on top of that, sometimes people will really focus on, I've just got to get through this battle. I've got to get what I need out of here. And then I'm going to solve my my financial problems. And then when they pop off from air, you can suddenly see, well, there's all these legal fees, there's payday loans, there's credit cards. And the person's been, you know, living no sort of an existence for a period of years. So what would be the first and the last minute here in this? segment for somebody walking in the door in that situation like that must be very i mean it'd be very heartbreaking for sure Mm -hmm. that they've had to go through this but what do you do what are the first sort of things that you would do yeah the the toughest thing is the way i describe is the interaction between you know marital separation law breakdown and that and insolvency it's not clean Um, so sometimes especially if a proceeding is not finished it can be very difficult to file a bankruptcy or a proposal if you don't know if that person's going to have a half title to the house or Mm. no title to the house if they're going to have to pay two thousand dollars a month support or two hundred dollars a month support so in some cases, the right answer is, okay, we need to see this thing play out, um, and then we can decide on what the right restructuring option is. But I would still encourage people to come in and talk to a trustee. You know, If nothing else, a trustee could help you know, write something to your creditors and saying, here's what I'm dealing with. I've been to see a trustee. My intention is to offer you a proposal as soon as I'm able to do so. Right. Just another set of ears on the situation for sure. Uh, you're listening to Dollars and Cents. For information on any of the services that we've talked about, go to the website, sands-trustee.com or give them a call at 1-800-661-3030. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. We'll be back with more right after this.
Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. Doug Hoyes is on the phone right now. Uh, Doug is, like Blair, a licensed insolvency trustee, co-founder of Hoyes Michelos, a firm of uh, licensed insolvency trustees in Ontario, uh, inspired to bring his financial experience to work by helping individual people and not corporations. Uh, Doug is a big advocate for consumers needing debt relief uh, so that they get fair and respectful debt management solutions. He's a regular commentator in all kinds of national media. We're so happy to have you on the show, Doug. It's great to be here. Thanks very much. Now, this segment, we're going to talk about a book that's just come out of yours. It's called Straight Talk on Your Money, The Biggest Financial Myths and Mistakes and How to Avoid Them. I'm pretty sure that we could fill up an entire hour, Doug, with the information from your book. But let's just focus on a couple of things. Um, Where did you get the title? What is Straight Talk on Your Money? Well, I find that a lot of talk about money is a sales pitch. You know, sometimes it's obvious you go into the car place and the car salesperson's obviously there to sell you a car. You understand you're talking to a salesperson, but often it's not quite so obvious. Like when you walk into the bank and you're dealing with the bank teller, you don't maybe fully understand that they're also there to sell you something a lot of the time. So I think we need fewer sales pitches and more straight talk when it comes to our money. So that's what this book is about. As you mentioned, I go through 22 myths many of which are sales pitches, and I give you the straight talk on your money so that you you can be aware of them and then uh, avoid them or modify them as necessary. Now, it's really a, a really good point, when, and the bank was a great example, because you don't think that they're trying to sell you a product that's going to uh, benefit them in the long run. It might benefit you as well, but in the long run, they're going to earn the money, they're going to do a little bit better as a result of having more of your money, whether it be your mortgage or your loan or whatever it is. I think that's a really valid point. Yeah, and it's insidious because you don't realize you're being sold to. You've been going to the bank your whole life. Exactly. And you actually know who the person is there. You're, you're very friendly with them. And so you put your card in the machine because you've got to, you know, cash a check or get some U.S. money or whatever it is you're doing at the bank. And, and they instantly say to you, oh, this is, this is great. You, the computer says you qualify for a $10,000 line of credit. Do you, mm-hmm. do you want me to sign you up? And you're sitting there going, oh, oh, okay, well, I guess if the bank thinks it's a good idea, I guess I should do it. Obviously, they've done an analysis of my situation and, and know what's happening. Uh, yeah, they've done an analysis all right, and they offered you that line of credit as opposed to a credit card or a loan or something else because that's probably the thing that has the least risk for them, but they can make the most money on, and that's why you're offering it. they're offering it to you. So you just got a sales pitch, and you didn't even realize it. And if you were aware that a sales pitch was coming, maybe your guard's up and you can ask questions and be a little more guarded about it. But when you don't realize it's coming, that's when you get yourself into into trouble. No, and and I think the other piece of that, too, is it's not necessarily age-specific that they're directing it to. You could be a senior, you could be a really young person just starting out, or maybe student loans and you've got your first bank account for the first time, or, or you're living on your own for the first time, and... No, not everybody is is doing everything in your best interest, right? 
Absolutely, and you're right. If you're a student, then they're targeting you with maybe a credit card here. You get a $1,500 balance. It's got a pretty high interest rate because that's really all the bank can make money off with you. Uh, maybe it's a student line of credit or something. If you're a senior, it's, oh, well, look at this. You're, you're a senior. You've got a pension coming in. Uh, would you like to talk about uh, you know, maybe a loan so you can lend some money to your, to your adult children? Maybe we want to talk about a reverse mortgage, maybe something else that's more applicable to a senior. So they're very very good at targeting the offer to whomever is standing in front of them. And as you said earlier, it may or may not be in your, your best interest. And, and I'm not here to say that banks are bad. I mean, they're in business. They, this is what their job is. So I'm certainly not saying you should never go into a bank, and I, I don't want to paint them as the, the bad guys here. All I'm saying is you should be alert. You should have your spidey sense tingling, as it were, so that you understand what's coming, and therefore you can respond appropriately. Yeah, I think that that's great advice, Doug, because I think you you know you really need to understand, you know, in some cases the bank's interests are going to align with yours, but sometimes they're going to be complete opposite and you need to have that, you know, in your mind that is the advice I'm going to get, you know, for my interest or, or for theirs. Um, yeah, absolutely right. Yeah, I, I wonder, Doug, if we can dig into the book a, a little bit. Can we focus on you know a couple of the the top money myths and traps? You know, I, I read the book in detail. A lot of them I can see. You know, my clients and even myself at, at times falling into a few of them. I wonder if we can pick a couple that you think have resonated most uh, with individuals as you, as you've published the book very recently. Well, I uh, got an email today, as a matter of fact, from somebody who said, hey, I read the book, and I, I kind of have to object to what you said about the credit score in the book. I was hoping we'd talk because, about that, yeah. Well, there you go. Yeah. So, so um, he, he uh, happens to be in the, in the lending business, and he said, he's, he's a mortgage broker, and he said, you know, a credit score is really important if you want to be getting a mortgage. So I, I think you, you know, what you said wasn't really on base there in the book where, where you talked about credit score. And I said, well, let's be very specific about what I said in the book. I said that you should not organize your entire financial life solely for the purpose of getting as high a credit score as, as possible. I understand that a credit score is important. I get it. If you're going to qualify, trying to qualify for a mortgage or car loan, anything, the higher the credit score, the better. You're going to get better terms, lower interest rate, and so on. But you can also become overly obsessed with a credit score. So your credit score is based on a number of things, one of them being, well, how much debt do you already have and what's your utilization on it? So you could go out and get five credit cards that all have a $10,000 credit limit on them. And if you carried a balance of $2,000 on each one of them, you'd actually look pretty good to the credit scoring algorithm. Your utilization is 20% because you're borrowing 2000 against the 10000 on each card. That's a pretty good utilization. So that would probably make your credit score look pretty good, all else being equal. Well, let's ask the obvious question here. Does it make sense for you to have five different credit cards with a $10,000 credit limit on each and borrowing $2,000 on each of those five cards? That's $10,000 you're borrowing on your credit cards at probably pretty high interest rates. I don't think so. I think it's better to have money in the bank, cash in the bank, and so on, but that doesn't show up on your credit report. There's no section on your credit report that says you're a good saver and you have money in your TFSA or your RSP or anything like that. All it shows is how you're handling your debt. So I don't believe we should be focusing on trying to get the best credit score. I think we should be focusing on doing what's best for ourselves, which in a lot of cases is having less debt and more savings. 
Yeah, that, that's a great point, Doug. And I can just echo that in the clients that I, I sit down with, obviously, folks that, that you see as well in a similar situation. And maybe it's because there's just not that many easy indicators that are out there. But a lot of people see a credit score as the be all and the end all the indicator of whether I'm, you know, a good customer or not. Um, and to, to your point, you know, they can be completely divorced from your actual financial health. Yeah, uh, well, that's absolutely right. I mean, if if you had $10 million in the bank, you'd never borrowed a, a cent in your life, mm-hmm. you owned your house outright, you wouldn't even have a credit score. Yeah. Yeah, you'd and be yeah, worse than, than the person with the five credit exactly, cards. Exactly, yeah. exactly, and that just that just makes absolutely no sense. So again, one of the themes in the in the book, Straight Talk on Your Money, is you've got to be the boss. You've got to do what's right for you. So if you know you're going to be trying to qualify for a mortgage or something in the future, okay, then I guess you've got to take some steps to make sure your credit score is as good as it can be. But let's not go crazy. Let's not go overboard here. Let's not get so much debt that it ends up hurting us in the long run. So, Doug, so, so continuing on with that thought, if I'm supposed to be in control or, or the boss of this situation, and I'm not very good with money, I don't have that base of knowledge that you obviously have or others have, where do I start? How, what are the things that I first keep in mind before I walk in that door? Well, I think everybody has to do their own research and do their own thinking. So one of the themes also in the book, in fact, it's one of the first chapters, is you should not just blindly rely on experts. Don't just believe whatever the the banker or the financial advisor tells you. So I think the starting point for everyone is to do some research, do some, some thinking on your own. Um, there's tons of resources at the library. They're free. There's lots of websites out there and blogs and podcasts. Obviously, shows such as the the one we're on right now have lots of great information. So I think you do your research, learn what's out there. You've got to obviously separate the wheat from the chaff a bit because some stuff is going to conflict with other stuff. But do the thinking so that you then become aware of um, of what's out there. I mean, if, if you want to have better health, then you need to learn a bit about exercise and nutrition and things like that. Um, it's the same with money. You've got to put the time in, put the effort in to, to do some learning. Doug, what about a, another really big learning for, from the book? So the credit score, I think, is absolutely pivotal. Is there another one that's really resonated, you know, either good or bad with the folks that you've shared the book with? Yeah, the the other big section, um, and this is the one that gets comments a lot from people in both Toronto and Vancouver. Got to be housing. <laughs> you got it. Real estate. <laughs> yeah. Real estate. And so... Uh, one of the things I say in the book is you should not think of real estate as an investment. You should not think of your house as an investment. And people in Toronto and Vancouver go, well, that's crazy. I mean, look at the house prices. They go up 20% every year, year after year after year. It's a fantastic investment. Yeah, okay, that's what's happened over the last five or six years. If you look back over 20 or 30 years, it's not exactly the same. But the reason I say that is if you think your house is an investment, you will be much more tempted to buy way too big a house and take on way too big a mortgage than what you can realistically afford. Even if your house is going up in value, if you can't afford to make the mortgage payments, if you become house rich but cash poor, can't even pay the property taxes, you're trapped in your house, you can never even go out for dinner. I don't think that's a great situation. So my advice is think of your house like any other consumer good. It's just like a toothbrush. 
It's something I buy. It's something I get value out of. I use it. But it's not an investment. I'm not buying a toothbrush because I think it's going to go up in value. I think we overestimate how much our houses have gone up in value, too, because if you've lived in the place for 10 years, you've probably put a new roof on it and fixed the furnace and done some plumbing and did, did some landscaping and a whole bunch of other stuff. So I think we overestimate how much we've actually made because we ignore all those costs. But if you think of it as a place to live and... As a result, I think you'll be much more realistic in what you're buying. You'll try to have a bigger down payment, and you'll get into a lot less trouble. But, but yeah, the the real estate professionals, the mortgage brokers, they they don't agree with that. It's hey, look, they're they're going to go up in value, so the bigger the better. Well, I just don't agree. Doug, with the book, is there someone that the book is really aimed at, or is it a broad book that you know most people will find something to to you know take from it? It's an excellent question, and I've had great response from millennials because they right. said to me, "Yeah, no one's ever taught us." this stuff before. It's not like we learn it in school. But I've also had five or six people who are 80 years old and over say to me, you know, this is, this is really good. There's a, a couple of good things in there. There's a chapter on being immortal, which really speaks to the, the older uh, people out there. Um, and a lot of them say, yeah, this is, this is great stuff. I'm going to pass that book on to my adult children, and, uh, and it's good for them. So um, it's, it's not an age-specific book. I've tried to cover basic financial themes, which I think apply at all ages. The book is called Straight Talk on Your Money, The Biggest Financial Myths and Mistakes and How to Avoid Them. Author is Doug Hoyes. Doug, thank you so much for joining us. For more information about Doug, you can get on his website. Very easy to do. Hoyes.com. That's H-O-Y-E-S.com. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. We'll be back with more right after this. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. So tax season, it's on us. The most wonderful time of the year, right? (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) Maybe for accountants or tax planners. Oh, yeah, it's all good. Especially if you're getting a refund. Well, there you go. Check back from the government, free money, put it right into your RRSP. Right. That makes sense, right? It does. Yeah, or your TFSA, make that decision. But uh, we're being a a little bit um, lighthearted here because we're not talking about the happy times, unfortunately. Right, and it's not free money either, right? It's money that you've, you know, that you should have gotten in the first place. That's the way I look at it. it. It's your interest-free loan to the great government of Canada. (laughs) You gave them their money for a year and they paid you zero interest, but they gave it back to you. So that's nice, right? Exactly. Better than the alternative. Gave it. Back. That's true. No, you're absolutely right. So, uh, tips to have a f- stress free tax time. Uh, I've yet to have one of those in my life. Uh, but the number one is know the rules. And that sounds very big and daunting, I have to admit. Yeah, you know, for the most part, things don't change a whole lot with filing your taxes. If you're a standard employee, you get one T4, maybe you've got some charitable deductions, some RRSPs or things like that. Year to year, not a lot's going to change for you, but uh, you do want to check every year and see what's new and exciting with Canada Revenue Agency because there can be some things that can impact you. And definitely if you're self-employed, you want to look with a much more fine-tooth comb because almost every year the government is making some changes that impact self-employed people. 
Hmm. Um, so a couple things for 2018 of what's changed. Um, there's now a medical expense tax credit for service animals. So in some cases, the cost of caring for a service animal can now be claimed as a medical expense. So hmm. this is something more and more that you see if you're flying or transit or things like that. A lot of people have service animals that help them deal with various maladies. And finally, the government is recognizing that that can be an allowable medical expense. So if someone's listening who has a service animal, I would say look into that and just see if there is in the ability uh, for you to get a greater refund by having that deduction this year. That's interesting. Um, another one, and this is for anybody who's self-employed, is there's an accelerated investment initiative. And what this means is that capital cost allowance rates um, in the first year are going to increase. I know that sounds like a mouthful. And what it means is if you're a business person and you buy an asset, um, you're allowed to deduct some of the cost of that asset against your income over a period of years. It's called amortizing the asset. And the, the, the rate that you do it has called the capital cost allowance rate. Uh, the government wants to encourage small businesses to invest. So for certain categories, they've increased the amount that you're able to deduct on that asset, which mm. means all things being equal, you're allowed to deduct more on the asset, which would mean you'd get a larger tax refund um, at the end of the day. So those are a couple things uh, that actually would um, impact someone filing their taxes this year. Um, also keep in mind, if you've had a financial change, if you're suddenly self-employed and you weren't before, um, or if you're not self-employed anymore and now you're T4, um, make sure you understand the differences in how you're filing your returns. Um, and then finally, a piece of advice here is don't try to outsmart the government. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, if you are making a claim, make sure you've got some backup on it. You know, moving expenses are one that they love to audit very often. Medical expenses are another. So any deductions that you make, even though the government might send you back a refund thinking that they've accepted everything, they have the right to come back and potentially audit those returns uh, for a period of a few years. So make sure you keep all of your receipts and all of that and make sure you have a basis for any deductions that you do claim. Wow, that's really good advice. And that's a bit scary to know that they can uh, come back even after they've sent you that refund check. Mm -hmm. Oh, and, and one more, Elaine, just on that, that just kind of jogs my memory, but I'm seeing less and less of this, but it is out there and this is tax scams. Right. So people falling prey to those, it's almost always the same type of a model, but things change, whether it's artwork or software or something, but you buy something, say for $10 and they give you a tax receipt for a hundred, a hundred and fifty, a thousand dollars sometimes. Okay. So that when you get that bigger tax receipt, um, you put it at basically on your tax refund and you get or on your tax return, you get a bigger tax refund. I have never, never seen one of those schemes that actually worked. I've had so many people in my office in tears, despondent. Sometimes their whole family have done these approaches where again, common sense a little bit. If you're only paying $10, you should be getting a $10 deduction receipt. If there's something different there, it sounds like it's a scam and it's just going to be a short term gain, a lot of long term pain. The old smell, smell test, right? Exactly. If it doesn't smell good, it probably isn't. That's right. So uh, get it filed. And I think that's a really important, important note. I mean, mm -hmm. you, if you owe money or think you owe money, or you know what I do? I just get it done by the deadline, period. Yeah, you just got to get it done. you don't know. Whether you owe money or not, it's still your responsibility. It's yes. still the price of living in the society, the social contract is that you will file a tax return every year. Um, again, it's worse to file, a, sorry, to not file a return than it is to file a return that says that you owe money. CRA is going to take much more lightly to you if you've been compliant every year and suddenly you owe them a bit of money, they'll work with you. If you haven't filed taxes for five years, often they'll do what's called an arbitrary assessment where you'll be amazed at the information sources they have. They'll have all of your bank statements. They'll look at all the cash that's moved in and out of your accounts and they'll take the view that every bit of cash that you got was income and they'll probably 
deny all of your business expenses and then give you this massive tax bill that now you've got to try to disprove them. So it's basically, it's a tactic that they use to really get your attention to say, if you had just filed this return, we wouldn't have had to make this arbitrary assessment and cause you all these problems, you know, trying to disprove the numbers that we've got. So just get it done. Um, I have seen situations, not often, but I have seen them uh, where CRA can actually get someone arrested um, for not filing tax returns. So this is, you know, 20 years of of non-compliance or things like like that. So this is really the last of the last straws there. You're probably not going to be arrested for not filing, uh, but it doesn't get better over time. File the returns. Uh, once you know what the what the challenge is, you know, once you get the, res- the assessment back, then you can deal with it. And just in case you're wondering, for your, uh, for your 2018 tax year, April 30th is the deadline That's for 2019. Right. April 30th, 2019. Yeah, it's important to know the deadlines. And thank you for that, Elaine. So it a- is. A- April 30th, the return has to be in. And if you owe money, you've also got to pay that balance by this time. Yeah. Now, if you're self-employed, they give you a little bit of extra time to get your return in. You got until June 15th, but you still have to pay for April 30th. So if you overpay, they'll give you the money back. If you underpay, you will be charged interest on that balance. So you've got to estimate what you think you'll owe um, and you have to get that that in there. Uh, Sorry, get that that, uh, payment in for that amount. Yes. Now, if you do file late, there's certain penalties that you have to deal with. Okay. And if you owe money for 2018 and your return is filed late, there's an immediate penalty of 5% of the balance owing and then 1% of the balance owing for each full month the return is late. So that can be pretty significant, yes, right? 5% significant. off the top. And that's just if you're just past that April 30th deadline, right? you know, for any point past that. Uh, if you habitually file late, then CRA is going to increase the penalties. So if you had to pay a late filing penalty on 15, 16, or 17 tax returns, then in 2018, they increase the penalty to 10 percent plus two percent for each month so they double the price wow so it makes sense they want you to be compliant get the returns in on time and please pay the balance if you're able to do so at that point now be balanced smart if you're getting a refund so how can I be balanced smart? Well, so we joked about it a little bit. You know, it really is your money. It's not the government giving you money back that you gave them a nice loan. Yeah. Uh, but keep in mind, you know, this is money that you weren't counting on. So obviously you hadn't spent it already, hopefully. So what can you do with it that's going to be of the most benefit? Right. Um, you know, if you're carrying debt, throw it directly to your debts to reduce them. You know, if you're in a consumer proposal, make an extra payment on it. Um, you know, that's going to be money that's going to save you because if you're carrying credit card debt, 20% interest on that, where else could you invest and get an immediate 20 percent return nowhere right. right but paying down your debts you're getting that return just by by reducing the balance um, you know putting it into a TFSA or an RRSP that's a great use for it as well what a lot of people tend to do is they try to put some money into their RRSPs um, prior to the tax filing deadline so that they'll end up with a refund yes. and then they use that refund and put it into their TFSA so you're kind of leveraging both and you're using both of those retirement vehicles and ideally they'll be there when you need them yeah and your bookkeeper or your tax person will be able to give you some advice too on how best how best to do that or explain it to you as well. That's exactly that's, right. Yeah, it's a great idea. Uh, pay what you owe and plan ahead is number four. Mm-hmm. When you owe money for taxes, make sure you pay your balance owing in full on time. And then you talked about the the uh, fines that exist, mm-hmm. the uh, debt compounds daily, which is also something to keep in mind. Exactly. 
a bit crazy. I'm not crazy. I shouldn't say that, but yeah, important to know. Yeah, it's, it's not credit card level interest, but it is significant. Uh, and CRA's interest rates can change. They can change every three months. You know, as of now, it's about 6% uh, for overdue taxes, CPP and EI premiums. Um, but yeah, it's not a balance that you'd want to keep going. Exactly. So listen, if any of this is resonating with you or you're thinking, oh boy, I didn't pay my taxes 2015, 2016, 2017, and I am in debt and I am in a bit of a pickle, or I'm just really uncomfortable where I am right now in terms of uh, debt or your financial situation, go see Blair. Go see the folks at Sands & Associates. Check out their website, sans-trustee.com, or give them a call, 1-800-661-3030. Get that consultation and to find an office near you. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.